Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. We have a terrific show for you this week, but first a couple of housekeeping notes. Every two years, we survey our listeners in an effort to learn more about you and what interests you. We then share survey results with advertisers and prospective advertisers whose support of this program has kept it free and independent. This week, our 2019 survey goes online at manpodcast2019.questionpro.com. I'd be quite surprised if it takes more than five minutes for you to fill out. Again, please go to manpodcast2019.questionpro.com and help us inform and entertain you. manpodcast2019.questionpro.com. And you can find a link to the survey on our show's website, too. And while I'm begging, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download the show. That keeps the algorithms happy, they're very hungry, and will help us continue to expand our audience. Thanks, on to the show. This week, we start off with Late Manet. Along with Gloria Groom, J. Paul Getty Museum curators Scott Allen and Emily A. Beanie, my guests, are the co-curators of Manet and Modern Beauty. It's at the J. Paul Getty Museum through January 12th, 2020. It's the first exhibition to examine the work Manet made during the end of his short life. He died at 51, including portraits, still lifes, watercolors, cafe and garden scenes, and even some fantastic examples of his correspondence. The excellent exhibition catalog was published by the Getty. You can get it on Amazon for $43 via a link at manpodcast.com. On the second segment, Chiao Sachet at the Asia Society Museum in New York. And did I mention manpodcast2019.questionpro.com is where our survey is? Scott Allen and Emily Beanie, after the break. This fall, for its 30th anniversary, the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents a union of three internationally acclaimed artists, all originally from Ohio and exhibiting together for the first time. Here, Ann Hamilton, Jenny Holzer, Maya Lin explores ideas of place, time, language, and perception through world premiere and site-specific works in the Wex galleries. Additional off-site components activate spaces at Ohio State and around the city of Columbus. Here is on view through December 29th. For more information, go to wexarts.org. Opening October 8th at the Getty Center, Manet and Modern Beauty, the first exhibition ever to explore the last years of painter Edward Manet's short life. Stylish portraits, luscious still lifes, delicate pastels and watercolors, and vivid cafe and garden scenes convey Manet's elegant Parisian social world and reveal his growing fascination with fashion, flowers, and the contemporary trappings of femininity. Learn more about this major exhibition and get tickets at getty.edu 360. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents An Impressionist Autumn, a pair of extraordinary exhibitions that celebrate French avant-garde painting and capture a who's who of the Impressionist, Post-Impressionist, and Early Modern movements. See paintings by pivotal artists like Picasso, Van Gogh, and Monet, who sparked the major art movements of the late 19th to early 20th century, in Monet to Picasso, a very private collection. Then step into Berta Morisot, Impressionist original, to discover Berta Morisot's portraiture, her focus on the life of women in 19th century Paris, and her singular role as one of the founding members of the Impressionist group. Opening on October 20th. Visit mfah.org slash impressionistautumn for more. Hello, Texans. It's my pleasure to remind you that we have another live show coming up this week, Tuesday, October 15th at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth. 
I'll be talking with Robin O'Neill on the occasion of a 20-year survey of her work that opens at The Modern next weekend. The live show is Tuesday, October 15th at 7 p.m. Tickets are free. O'Neill will sign books from 5.30 to 6.30 p.m., and the show will start at 7. Hope to see you there. And we're back. Scott Allen and Emily Beanie, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks so much for having us. This exhibition you've curated with Gloria Groom starts in the mid to late 1870s. Manet dies in 1883. He's just 51 years old at the time of his death. Perhaps because, probably because Manet died so young, we don't often think of him as having a late period. Um, and, and, And Lord knows Americans love to assign late periods to French painters. Why were the last years of Manet's career something that that you wanted to examine that was worth special attention? Well, the project really originated when the Getty Museum acquired the painting Jeanne, which also goes by the name of Spring. Uh, That acquisition was made in late 2014. And this was a painting that was among Manet's final salon paintings, shown in 1882. And almost immediately, conversation about doing some kind of show around the painting happened. And the more we thought about it, the more clear it became that this picture really kind of focalized a number of issues regarding Manet's later years. The picture with its emphasis on fashionable Parisian femininity in particular uh, really spoke to a heightened emphasis uh, on that theme in his later years. And that's, that's how it began. I think it's true that when we think of Manet, we tend to think of the work that he produced in the 1860s. So at the beginning of his career, in this moment of radical confrontation with tradition, pictures, of course, like the luncheon on the grass exhibited at the Salon des Refusés in 1863, or the Olympia, his famous reimagining of the Venus of Urbino as a Parisian prostitute, shown at the Salon in 1865. So these sorts of ambitious confrontational pictures that he painted in in the early part of his career are really sort of synonymous with his name. But what's going on in the last years of his life is really very different. And the Getty painting is really emblematic of his activity in that period. So the interest in fashion, as Scott just said, in flowers, and in all of the sort of contemporary trappings of fashionable femininity. I think There has never been an exhibition devoted to quote-unquote late Manet before, partly because the work that he produced in these years assorts very oddly with our heroic understanding of Manet as the father of modern art. And so that's really why we felt that, that this is a period that deserves to be examined on its own terms to try to understand why all of these pretty girls and flowers at this moment in his career. As several of the essays in the catalog suggest, surely one of the reasons for his late-in-life foci uh, is his health and and how he was in some ways, you know, confined is is an overly strict word, but but semi-confined to home. What was his health situation and, and how did it have an impact or relationship or something to who and what he ended up painting in those years? So there's some differences of opinion about about the the dates when his, his health problems first started manifesting, but really by the late 1870s, you know, he was starting to suffer sort of paroxysm of pain in his shooting pains in his leg that really affected his 
mobility. He starts to drag his. He starts to drag a leg. He has sort of an uh, unstable gait, and you know his social persona as a flaneur, as a man about town, you know, sort of the, the elegant dandy who represents a, sort of the, the summa of masculine deportment, uh, fashionable masculine deportment. Uh, and urban mobility. Yeah. And urban mobility is compromised. And this really is, you know, a, a crisis for, for Manet. And it does impact his work in very tangible ways. Starting in 1880, every summer he absents himself from Paris for these suburban respites. He pursues hydrotherapy treatments in Bellevue and rest cures in Versailles and in Rue in 1881 and then 1882. And so he's in this kind of suburban exile and being away from Parisian society is a real test for him and he's lonely and bored and he's kind of ill-tempered some of the time you know he can't when it's raining he's just sort of fuming in his letters <laughs> and you know and he's he's not alone his mother and his and his wife Suzanne are are there he has the occasional visitor but you know the lifeline he has is his correspondence mm-hmm. and so the, all of a sudden there's this blossoming of correspondence I should point out that many of the letters are indeed in the show Yes, indeed. And this is actually the largest group of the illustrated letters. So these are letters whose margins he fills with watercolor illustrations. This is the largest group of these works that's ever been exhibited outside of France, which for us is very exciting. A lot of these reside in private collections. And so we're, we're so pleased to have been able to gather such an important group of them together. But but so these watercolor letters really also speak apropos of your you know sort of question about how his illness affects his work. I think these letters do speak to his interest in alternative media. That's, you know, this interest is inspired in part by his physical limitations. So watercolor and pastel are media that are somewhat less physically taxing than oil paint. You know, they don't require the same kinds of lengthy drying times, the same kind of elaborate studio apparatus. They don't require you necessarily to stand in front of an easel for hours at a time. So I think that the, the, move towards new media is absolutely, in some way, a reflection of his physical limitations. So, too, is the, you know, shrinking dimension of his canvases. For Very his oil literally. Paintings. Yeah. So we actually we actually see the paintings themselves become smaller in this period, even, you know, his largest and most ambitious paintings from the late years. So, for example, a bar at the Folie Berger, a painting that's not in the show, but that was the salon mate of the Getty painting, Jeanne, in 1882, is very much smaller than a work like Luncheon on the Grass. And that, I think, partly had to do with his shrinking stamina. Before we get to the subjects of, of these late works, is there a stylistic break or evolution that occurs in the last six or eight years of his work? I would say yes. I think it's a it's a an evolution that sees its culmination really in these years. I think we begin to see a shift, frankly, starting in 1872, when Manet sells basically half of his output to date to Durand Ruel in a single transaction. So this happens in January of 1872. He's sells, I believe, 23 pictures of the roughly 50 canvases he has kicking around his studio to Durand-Ruel. And then he moves into a bright new studio space, leaving behind the Batignol district, moving into the Europe district, this new neighborhood around the Gare Saint-Lazare. 
So this big, bright new studio, this sort of unencumbering of himself, of his, you know, of these large, dark canvases of the 1860s. So we start to see a new interest in light effects, a new interest in what his impressionist colleagues are up to. In 1874, he spends a summer with Monet in the suburbs, you know, painting along the river. So these are changes that have already started to happen in the earlier 1870s, but they really kind of come to fruition in the period that our show looks at. So I would say in sort of broad strokes, the stylistic changes are a new sort of lightness and brightness of palette, arguably of subject matter, and often too of handling a more sort of impressionist look to his faction. Yeah, I think we also see a certain kind of eagerness, I mean, that comes and goes, but that is present to sort of take credit for impressionism, which is tricky because I think one reason why Manet is such a studio artist is that he is a much less facile painter mm -hmm. than someone like Monet. So Monet tells us, you know, that Manet always wanted to create the impression, to create the appearance that his pictures had been painted at the first go. But we have many accounts from Monet, but also from the Moiseau family and others of Manet going back, wiping down, scraping off, starting again, portraits that he started 40 times. <laughs> so whose surfaces wear this kind of impressionist skin sometimes of visible brush strokes and sort of breathless luminosity, but whose deep structure is extremely labored. No, this is one of the fascinating paradoxes of Manet. And in terms of his relationship to color, this is also really fascinating to me. And, uh, you know, one of our sort of dominant goals in the show was to bring together a beautiful group of the late flower paintings. And these are really kind of beautiful synthesis and summation of his talent as a painter. And on, on one hand, they represent sort of the triumph of impressionistic mm. color. And they're so brilliant, the tones in these paintings. And there's such a celebration of color. They're real like bouquets, as the, the French would say. But this color is offset by these dark, dark backgrounds in many, many cases, which, you know, brings this kind of old master mm -hmm. resonance to them and, you know, harkens back to the earliest days of Manet's life as a painter, where sort of the dark brown tone background is still part of this sort of layered technique he learned in Couture Studio. So there, there's ways that he's He's still dealing with those traditional techniques that he learned as a as a young student, and he's incorporating, you know, this liberated color that that he's learned in his dialogue with the impressionists. Those those late flower paintings are particularly fun for me. They're they, they, because they uh, show these informal, if you will, arrangements of flowers in very simple glass vases or glasses. Surely one of the primary places off from which Matisse jumps. Um, Matisse, you know, will spend, will go on to spend a quarter of a century engaging not with those flowers, although there are flowers in Matisse, but, but being particularly interested in the way light moves through the water in, in those paintings. All, all three of you, to, to speak for Gloria Groom, who's, who's not with us, define Manet's most frequent subject in these later years as the Parisienne. What is, what was the Parisienne, and why was that a subject, forgive me, I don't mean this as a slight, a subject big enough, broad enough, ambitious enough to hold his focus? 
Well, I think the Parisienne is probably first and foremost a creature of fashion. So perhaps, you know, often defined by youthful beauty and so on, but above all defined by her fashionability, by her engagement with contemporary sort of trends in fashion. And I think this really sort of leads us in a way back to 1863 and to Charles Baudelaire's great essay, The Painter of Modern Life, in which fashion really functions as a a marker of what Baudelaire defines as contingent beauty. So for Baudelaire, there are, who, as you know, of course, was an important friend and mentor for Manet at the beginning of his career and whose sort of influence, I think, continues to be felt, I think we agree, continues to be felt in Manet's work right to the very end. So in that essay, Baudelaire sort of defines two halves to be of, of beauty, two halves of beauty. So, you know, there is universal, permanent, undying beauty, and then there is contingent, fleeting beauty. And often contingent beauty is sort of the stylish packaging in which universal beauty or permanent beauty can be kind of delivered to mere mortals. But it is it is a, an essential component. And, and fashion is sort of the ideal metaphor for contingent beauty because of its impermanence, because it is continually changing over. And so, it, you know, so fashion really is serves in a way as a kind of metaphor for modernity, for impermanence, for for the contingent half of Baudelarian beauty. Emily, could you give us a painting or two in which those ideas manifest themselves? Well, I feel like the Getty picture is probably the clearest, it provides the clearest articulation, the clearest sort of visual example of this idea. As you know, so Manet carefully picked out every aspect of that model's outfit, carefully sort of, you know, the sort of active confectionery of dressing the model Mademoiselle de Marcy in this elaborate hat, in this delicately embroidered or printed floral pattern of a dress. So the sort of active confectionery um, with fashion, this sense that the dressing of the model is integral to the creation of the composition, that in a sense, fashion is as important as paint to the creation of the composition, I think is, is most deeply felt in, in Jeanne, in, in, in the Getty painting. Though I think that it's also very present in all sorts of other works in the exhibition. I mean, I think, for example, it's present in skating, a picture that we're borrowing from Harvard that represents Henriette Auxerre, a sort of actress demi-mondaine in fashionable winter attire at, at a skating rink, the sort of modish Parisian entertainment of the moment. So she's a sort of quintessential Parisienne as defined through her fashionability in that painting. I think it's also very true in, in the pendant to the Getty picture, Autumn, a portrait of Manet's intimate friend, Marie Laurent, who is dressed in sable and sapphires and posed against a Japanese kimono in that picture. So again, the sort of fashionable ingredients of dress and of background are, are integral to the creation of the picture, perhaps as integral to the creation of the picture as the paint with which it's painted. So, Scott, you wrote about the salons in the catalog. Manet was a deep and thorough salonist, if you will, but the salon didn't always love him back, although maybe he didn't exactly love the salon. He just found it inevitable. Why is it important to consider Manet's positions vis-a-vis -vis the salon, especially at, at this point in his career? Well, one of my motivations in taking on that topic is the way 
art history is often taught where a large accent is placed on the innovations of the Impressionists. Manet is kind of always considered in that group context. It's Manet and the Impressionists and the dialogues he'd had with them. And these are very important relationships to his career. But, you know, Manet was one of the most eminently sociable Parisians with a huge network of artistic contacts and journalistic contacts. He was thoroughly embedded in the art world of Paris, which included the Impressionist group, but included many, many others as well. And he counted many salon painters among his friends. And it is an indisputable fact that this was his primary exhibition ground. He did mount the occasional solo show in the studio or at a gallery like that of the fashionable journal La Vie Moderne in 1880. But these are tend to be sort of occasional one-offs. But what he's doing every year is preparing for the salon and, you know, getting accepted or rejected. It's his chosen field of combat. And I found that, that, that this was a kind of a curious ball blind spot. I mean, everybody has written about the scandalous reception of paintings like Olympia. And this is, you know, part of art historical lore. But in the last years, the political situation in particular has changed somewhat. And Manet is older. Critics are a little more used to his paintings. And his art has started to have, have an impact, as has the art of the Impressionists. And so the whole color and complexion of the Salon is changing these years. And so I was really interested in how Manet navigated a new situation where his sort of status was changing and he wasn't quite the same avant-garde rebel as he had been in the 1860s. The Impressionists had taken that mantle from him to some extent. And a lot of the ire in the 1870s was concentrated around their exhibitions. And so what an artist of Manet's stature and age and accomplishment in, you know, his late, in his sort of 40s is doing was really interesting. And I also had had the sense that Manet was an extremely, you know, he had his finger on the pulse. He was always responding to things that, uh, like, of the moment and what was happening around him in the moment, down to painting little pictures on tambourines and ostrich eggs because <laughs> other artists were doing it. And it was sort of the fashion du jour, the fashion of the minute, you know. And so surely he was responding to major artists in the salon and tussling with them. And so that's what I wanted to tease out in the essay. You mentioned Manet's social circle and the politics of the time, which is probably the perfect way to get into a series of portraits Manet made in and around 1880 and what they suggest to us about the unsteady state of French politics and Manet's place within them, within those politics as both an artist and as a, an avant-garde figure. The first is Manet's great portrait of Proust in, in Toledo from 1880. What portrait do you consider it most in the context of and why? Well, I think the most immediate comparison for Manet might have been the portrait that Henri Fantin Latour painted of Manet in 1867 for the Salon, which really showed Manet as the sort of the gentleman dandy, the proper bourgeois, at a moment when Manet was the most scandalous figure in the French art world. And so this was Fantin Latour's gesture of solidarity with Manet and attempt to show a more respectable side 
of the artist and sort of help legitimize him at a in a year when you know Manet was absent from from the salon and that painting is dedicated you know sort of to my, my friend Edouard Manet before you do the Proust portrait could you tell people where in the show the portrait of Manet is we have it just at the very beginning of the show you know to introduce the artist and his public persona in in the French art world. So right at the beginning of the show. So the Proust portrait presents a dear old friend of Manet's, a childhood friend who had studied art for a while with Manet in Thomas Couture's studio before he went on to a career in journalism and then politics. Proust is presented very much as the fashionable dandy, and you can sort of see the sort of brotherly or cousin-like relationship between the two men. They have a, a definitely a similarity of aspect in their their fair complexion and beards and uh, their attire, you know, but there's a certain level of swagger to the Proust, which is just, you know, perhaps just slightly exaggerated. That painting is dedicated, you know, to my friend, you know, Proust by, by Manet. And... I think the timing of that portrait is particularly critical. 1880 was the first salon after a major political shift in the Third Republic in France. Even though the Third Republic dates back to the end of the Franco-Prussian War, the initial years, you know, that government was led by, you know, arch-conservative borderline monarchist factions and there was very much this atmosphere of a a return to order and a perception that, that it was the decadence of the second empire that had helped precipitate this crisis and this war and then ultimately the the commune the sort of in horrible horrible situate then the suppression of the commune it's only in the late 1870s where the mood is starting to become a little more optimistic and a series of elections in 1878 and 1879 result in a more center-left government coming to power. And because the Salon is a kind of a state-controlled enterprise at this point still, meant that there is an immediate liberalization of various Salon regulations. And so there's a sense that I think Manet shared that the tide was maybe turning for him and that important figures in the state arts administration, including his old friend Proust, would have a real impact on his career. And that indeed happened. The year after that Manet exhibited that portrait in the Salon, Proust becomes the Minister of Fine Arts, gets Manet into the Legion of Honor. And, you know, that's sort of the beginning of Manet's canonization, which, you know, kind of mostly happens posthumously. But the tide is beginning to turn largely because of this relationship with Proust. So I think it's a very savvy, strategic, active exhibition announcing his sort of friendship and closeness to this important political figure who's really a rising star in the in the politics of the Third Republic. As we've mentioned the Franco-Prussian War a couple times, I should fill in that it begins in 1870 and and concludes in early 1871. So so this is eight or nine years later. The kind of next grouping of portraits I wanted to raise begins, air quotes, with Manet's portrait of Henri Rochefort um, that's now in Hamburg. It's a picture from 1881. It's jarring, striking in its brushwork. What does that portrait suggest? And what is uh, what is the, the painting against which you, so to speak, juxtapose it? 
So this was a painting that we really would have loved to have gotten for the exhibition. One one reviewer, I think, chastised us for not including the Rochefort portrait in the show, but we really we really did try. So I'm I'm a little sad that, that it's not there, especially since Man I showed it in 1881, the year before he shows Jean. And for me, that's that's a relationship that I find fascinating that he goes from this portrait, very kind of monochromatic and dark and sober in its palette to this, you know, colorful confection of Parisian femininity the next year. And so one gets a sense just in that juxtaposition, how Manet is really like each picture is its own separate campaign. And he's very strategic about doing very different things, both in juxtaposition and from one year to the next. Sometimes he, he scores a a hit and sometimes he scores a miss and the critical reception, you know, sort of fluctuates wildly. And this is what you know, he keeps the critics guessing this way. And it's really interesting. The one thing that I noted when I was doing a little bit of research on that painting is that like Proust, Rochefort is basically an exact contemporary of Manet's. You know, these masculine figures he's showing in the salon are in some ways surrogates or expressions of some facet of Manet's personality and are very much sort of middle-aged fellow travelers uh, who have had kind of interesting careers and Rochefort especially. I mean, he is, I mean, talk about, you know, if Manet is a scandalous figure in the 1860s, I mean, Rochefort, you know, kind of, you know, wrote the book as a as a kind of a dissident journalist. And then he sort of is entangled in the commune. He's exiled and then he returned he returns to Europe eventually and he kind of camps out in Switzerland and it's only in 1880 when with this liberal turn in French politics that an amnesty a general amnesty is granted to all of the communards who had been exiled and this was a big liberal cause that Manet himself was intimately following and and that he celebrated when this amnesty was granted and so the act of showing this sort of quote unquote, communard in the 1881 salon was, again, something that was very timely and of the moment. And Manet wasn't going to miss the opportunity to accord a figure like that, who was still a sort of a dissident figure, kind of a thorn in the side of the sort of two centrist Republican government. Manet wasn't going to waste an opportunity to give a platform and some visibility to a controversial figure like that and not sort of bury the past in a way that a lot of Republican politicians were calling for so that France could kind of move forward as a harmonious, unified country. There was still unsettled business and a lot of social discord and a lot of, you know, class inequity and that that kind of thing. So it's interesting that at a moment when the Salon is becoming more accepting of Manet, that he is still intent on being provocative and and stirring up controversy, whether it be politically or artistically. What does that portrait have to do with a portrait of, of all things, a lion hunter? I mean, what, one one thing I, I thought about, there was a sense that by this point, by the early 1880s, that the, sal- the salon wasn't as exciting and controversial and polarizing as it had been in sort of Manet's early heyday. And that you know, it was it was sort of become liberal and accepting. Everything was okay. It, it was just it was it was less combative. It was less politically uh, fraught. It was a little more sort of everything goes in this new liberal environment. And 
one thing that struck me in deliberately pairing it, this picture of ex-communard with a painting that seemed to really wear its impressionist uh, excesses on its sleeve with these kind of crazy blue-violet tones and this, this sort of, it was this kind of plenarist gesture on a pretty grandiose scale. That's the portrait of Pertuise. Um, the Pertuise, yes, sorry, the, the portrait of the hunter, which is, <laughs> you know, Pertuise is leaning in this kind of bizarre woodland setting, which is painted in these kind of screaming purple and uh, violet tones and bluish tones. And the critics, you know, had a conniption fit at the, at the coloristic excesses this, whereas the Rochefort portrait, as I mentioned, is sort of sober blacks and uh, and whites and and what have you. And Manet is is recalling a connection between political radicalism and artistic radicalism, which was a connection very commonly made at a more at an earlier, more conservative moment in the 1870s when the Impressionists were first showing. And when critics first saw, you know, Monet's and Renoir's, they were immediately labeling them all communards, right? And so I think it, pairing those two at, you may, maybe it's too abstract, but pairing those two is a way of reforging that connection between political and artistic radicalism at a moment when there was kind of conversation of, of uh, a sort of a general appeasement and quieting of things down. And Manet wasn't having it. Like he still wanted to be at the center of argument at some level, I think. Emily, why the heck was Paris in the midst of a Rococo revival by the time this show opens? And by, by which I mean, you know, by, by the mid to late 1870s. I mean, I think a lot of different cultural and political factors contribute to the Rococo revival, which really sort of gets underway in a substantial way in the late 1850s, the 1860s. So figures like Manet's teacher, Thomas Couture, who were actually pretty important in this Rococo revival, compared by contemporary critics to artists like Boucher and Van Loo, and also producing scenes of their contemporaries in fancy dress, but in fancy dress of the Italian comedy, so that they appear to be, so that many characters in Couture's pictures from the 1850s sort of appear to have stepped out of a painting by Watteau because they're dressed as Pierrot or, you know, Gilles, as Harlequin, etc. I think that, frankly, during the Second Empire, the Empress Eugenie and her sort of taste for real or pretend things 18th century, so whether it was fancy dress or whether it was, you know, paintings by Maisonnier of 18th century subjects or whether, you know, it was actual 18th century French pictures. Eugenie had just huge admiration for 18th century France, I think, perhaps partly because of, you know, a kind of nostalgia for a pre-revolutionary kind of antediluvian idea of aristocratic elegance that was plainly very attractive to her. So she helps kind of set the fashion for the Rococo as well. But, you know, various more or less bourgeois collectors had been collecting French painting and French drawings of the 18th century, going back easily into the 1830s, 1840s, at a moment when the, when those works of art had relatively low values, comparatively low values. So as the, you know, as the fashion sort of takes off in the 1850s, prices get higher and, you know, the Louvre begins investing in 18th century French art in a, in a more serious and concerted way. So sort of very high profile example of this is in 1852, the purchase of the Bath of Diana 
um, which becomes the first boucher to hang with any consistency in the Grande Galerie of the Louvre, and is a picture that is immediately copied by like every member of Manet's generation. So we know that Renoir copies it, we know that Whistler copies it, Manet himself copies it within a couple of weeks of its installation in the Grande Galerie, and you know it's it's. Its echoes are, are felt through through the work of certainly of Renoir right to the end of his career. I mean, in the the large bathers in Philadelphia would not exist without that that Boucher painting, which Renoir I think later on tells Volard you know was his first love and really sort of stayed with him through the rest of his life. It is also a picture that you know because Manet copies it, it it does have this sort of fascination for him in the early years of his career. I think we like to think of his sources, you know, with good reason, of his art historical sources as sort of following the grand painterly tradition, Rubens, Titian, Velasquez, Goya. But there is this sort of early flirtation with the Rococo in his copying of The Bath of Diana, and then an ongoing fascination, certainly with the work of, of Chardin, as a devoted painter of still life, even if he kept his still lives kind of on the DL, <laughs> never exhibiting them at the Salon, for example, but nevertheless, as a devoted painter of still lives throughout his career, how could Manet not look to Chardin, really the greatest French practitioner of the medium to, or of the, of the genre to date? Let's come back to Chardin in, in, a, in a moment. I, I imagine that Manet noticed, as, as Matisse would, the relationship between that Boucher and Correggio's Venus and Cupid with a satyr. You also, you know, while we're on Boucher, you also write about Manet and Fragonard, referring to Fragonard as, quote, a technical model for Manet. I probably should have thought about Fragonard and Manet before now, but I had not. How is he a technical model for Manet? So really, I think in terms of the breathlessness of his breathworks, so Fragonard in his maturity paints this, very celebrated series of, of so-called fantasy portraits, on the back of one of which, you know, there's this uh, famous inscription, which probably actually dates from a later moment, but which in the 19th century, when the picture belonged to Dr. Louis Lacaz, the greatest collector of 18th century French pictures in France, who leaves his entire collection to the Louvre in 1869, the, the, the stretcher of the painting bears the inscription, painted in an hour. And so there is this whole myth that surrounds Fragonard as a painter, as a totally effortless painter. And certainly as compared with Manet, I think he kind of was effortless. He was certainly an extraordinarily facile painter and draftsman. And I think in the sort of loose, flickering, creamy brushwork that Manet really evolves in the 1870s, there's a, a quite clear reference, in my opinion, to Fragonard. And even in, in a letter in which he's sort of describing one of the pictures that he produces in this period, a painting that's not in the exhibition, that's that's at the Musée d'Orsay, a portrait of Nina de Calias that's called, usually known as Woman with, with Fans. He actually describes that picture as a fantasy, which is exactly the term that is used to describe Fragonard's fantasy portraits when they go on view at the Louvre just a year or two earlier. So I do think that we can we can have some confidence that he's thinking about his own work in terms of Fragonard's. Also, Scott sort of mentioned the the Vimo Down exhibition, this mm. exhibition that Manet sort of throws together rather hastily in the spring of 1880 at the independent gallery uh, associated with this essentially fashion magazine. That gallery is located really just a couple of blocks from 
the auction house where the largest collection of Fragonard's work ever amassed is sold at the very time when Manet's exhibition is open. So those those are two those are concurrent events. And at the Vie Moderne, Manet shows at least one picture, arguably a couple of pictures, that seem to me to be in direct conversation with the work of Fragonard. So those are sort of interesting connections. 1880, that spring, as Scott mentioned, there's also you know, one of the Impressionist exhibitions is held that spring. And there, Manet's close friend, Berthe Morisot, also his sister-in-law by that point, very close colleague, exhibits a picture, well, exhibits a group of pictures that invite critics to compare her work to that of Fragonard. So there is a conversation going on about Fragonard's influence on contemporary French painting that spring, in the spring of 1880, his influence described in terms of sort of rapid, snowy, fluttery brushwork. But that conversation interestingly surrounds Berthe Morisot, who is erroneously at that point widely believed to be a descendant of Fragonard. But but really the reason I think why that, that conversation around Fragonard's influence on, on progressive French art of the moment centers around Morisot is that the 18th century, 18th century French painting in the later 19th century in France has this sort of wears a feminine perfume somehow that artists like Fragonard and Boucher, it's easy to associate them with a female artist like Morisot. There's something sort of decorative and sensuous about them that invites comparison to the work of a female contemporary artist. But Manet's contemporaries are much less likely to see the very clear connections um, that Manet is drawing between his own work and the work of artists like Fragonard or Boucher. To me, that's very fascinating. It really seems to have to do with the gendering of the 18th century as somehow quintessentially female in 19th century France. And that sort of the final connection that I, I trace in the essay between Manet and Fragonard has to do with the illustrated letters that that Manet sends from Bellevue in uh, the summer of 1880, because we actually know <laughs> that that summer at Bellevue, we know from Manet's letters, that he's reading a famous history of 18th century French art written by the brothers Jules and Edmond de Goncourt, who are great collectors of 18th century French drawings, as well as historians of the, of the 18th century, of French 18th century art. And in the essay in that volume that is devoted to Fragonard, Fragonard's own drawing practice is described as a form of correspondence or note. <laughs> and here, then, at the same time that he's potentially reading that very passage, Manet is filling his literal correspondence, his own notes, with wash drawings. So th these wash drawings are, are, are really great, and they feel spontaneous and, and, and brushy. And they feel very much related to Chardin and at the same time very not related to Chardin. The subjects are certainly related to Chardin. The handling of, of forms are related to Chardin, but but obviously they're watercolors and they're brisk. I guess in, in a lot of ways, the 18th century artist to whom Manet may have owed the most throughout his career was Chardin because, you know, he's pretty close to Chardin pretty early. How in the late work is he engaging Chardin, not just in those letters and drawings, but in his small scale oil paintings, too? 
Well, maybe I'll just speak quite quickly to the letters first, since sort of that was sort of the first half of the question. So the letter, I, I agree. The illustrated letters are just completely enchanting and seductive and feel so intimate. And as the great Manet specialist, Françoise Cachin, once said, really teach us more about Manet than the rest of his correspondence combined. They're amazing. And we are so excited to have amassed such a such a lovely group of them for the show. But the sense that they give off of rapidity and spontaneity and and the sort of line that they are spontaneous, rapid, virtuosic creations that's repeated by art historians through the generations. That we discovered in preparing the show seems really to be a carefully crafted illusion. So a large number of these illustrations seem actually to have been traced from more searching graphite drawings that he made in his notebooks. So a curious thing about these watercolors made at Bellevue in the summer of 1880 is that they lack any graphite underdrawing. So in Manet's earlier watercolor production going back into the 1860s, pretty much always, almost always certainly when describing more complicated three-dimensional forms, the structure of the design is laid in with line, with graphite, with pen, and then functionally colored in using the brush. And suddenly in the summer of 1880, the underdrawing disappears. And so really the way that he seems to have done this is by laying sheets of semi-transparent letter paper, so, you know, fool's cap, on top of pages in his notebooks on which he had, had made these, these careful little graphite drawings, and then traced over his designs with a sort of gray wash of watercolor functionally subtracting the underdrawing from the finished design. So then he goes back to the, the gray wash tracing and he, he fills it in with, with watercolor so that it looks as though he's constructed it from the start with the brush. And to me, what's so sort of moving about this process is the amount of effort invested in, the creation, in creating an illusion of effortlessness which to me is just classic Manet, <laughs> that he yeah. is so interested in courting this reputation and these effects of sort of, you know, maybe what a 16th century Italian would call sprezzatura, <laughs> you know, a, a sort of artful artlessness. And, and then disseminating, disseminating these, these sort of deceptively simple drawings by putting them in the margins of his letters and sending them out into the world. That he really, even in his sort of suburban exile, he's courting a reputation for, for effortless virtuosity. So that's in the drawings, which is great, which is fascinating. How about in, in the oil paintings, whether it's simple subject or way of putting paint on canvas or tone or relationship between background and subject slash foreground or all of the above? I, I think arguably all of the above. So in the late floral still lives, which is, as Scott said, are really some of the most beautifully painted pictures in his whole, whole career, which really exploit the varied possibilities of oil paint to create a million variations using these very simple perishable ingredients. So mm -hmm. lilacs and roses again and again, various other flowers again and again. So he uses these very sort of simple ingredients to create infinite variety. And frankly, just in in their, you know, in their use of plain backgrounds, plain dark backgrounds, as Scott points out, sort of stone, stone or, you know, marble tabletops, these sort of blank surfaces that offset the sort of spectacular painterly effects of the bouquet itself. 
sometimes in the use of use of sort of chinoiserie or, or Japanese kinds of vessels, even in the vertical format of, of these compositions, there are really powerful resonances with what is, I believe, the only bouquet that Chardin ever painted, mm. but is a work that passed through the market during Manet's lifetime, I believe in the early 1870s. I don't remember the exact date of the sale, but it, it did appear in an important private collection sale featuring a number of works by Chardin that I think it's very likely that Manet would have seen. Finally, how were these paintings in the last half dozen or so years of Manet's life important to artists going forward? Gosh, I mean, it, it, it really depends which works you're talking about. A work like The Bar at the Folie Bergère has had this kind of independent life life of its own that many artists of, you know, up to our day have engaged fairly directly with. The foremost in my mind is this uh, photo that Jeff Wall did called A Picture for Women in the late 70s, which is really a, a kind of a, a contemporary art photo restaging in some ways of, of that painting. One of our motivations, I think, as Emily said near the beginning of this conversation for doing this show was you know, really to show a a unfairly neglected side of Manet. And one of the things I think we're most proud of is that, you know, more than a quarter of the show consists of loans from private collections. There's a lot of this late, quote unquote, late material by Manet that hasn't had the public reception that, you know, we like to think it deserves. And so one of our motivations in doing the show is to give that work some more exposure. I mean, the interesting thing with Jeanne, this was a very famous painting in the years immediately after Manet's death. It was first owned by Antonin Proust. Antonin Proust organized the great Manet retrospective at the École des Beaux-Arts in 1884, which to this day remains, you know, the, basically the greatest Manet show that's happened <laughs> because of its comprehensive nature, which is impossible to reconstitute today. And then the painting soon thereafter entered the collection of Jean-Baptiste Faure, famous uh, opera singer and the most important collector of Manet's paintings in the late 19th century. And this was a very well-known collection that had some degree of public accessibility and that was also toured quite a bit in the first years of the 20th century. The painting disappears into an American private collection soon after that. And it's shown sporadically on loan to various institutions, but it's not part of any major Manet exhibition for decades and decades. It slipped in at the last minute in the 1983, the retrospective that happened in Paris and New York, but only in New York, and it doesn't feature in the catalog. That was the only time since about 1906. So we really felt like this work needed a fresh debut in the context of recent scholarship with material that hasn't had that reception. That said, I think paintings like the flower paintings, from the minute they were painted, have always been hugely admired by collectors and connoisseurs mm -hmm. and fellow artists. And people who really love Manet often love the late flower mm -hmm. paintings the best <laughs> and think that they really encapsulate his painterly genius in its sort of most kind of distilled, pure form, where it's just about paint and color mm -hmm. on on the surface of, of the canvas and about the pleasure of painting, not cut with any irony or, 
or with any mm. political agenda mm -hmm. or or anything like that. It's just about the artist's pleasure in his in his craft and in 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 giving visual pleasure to others. And so I you know I I, I can't think of contemporary still life painters who may mm. have Manet as a primary frame of reference. I'm sure they exist. I mean I do think certainly for me anyway, one hope of the show is also sort of to remind artists among other members of, mm -hmm. of the public, among other visitors, of the extraordinary beauty and generosity of these works and to invite people to, to consider them anew. And my guess is that we will, in Los Angeles, a city of, you know, such a sort of thriving contemporary art scene and with many active painters, that we will see little bits and pieces of, of late Manet finding their way into, into work exhibited at con mm. contemporary galleries around the city um, can, in the years to come. Can I just share one small anecdote? I, there's, a, there's a painter in LA I know named uh, Mark Trujillo, and he was visiting the Getty some months ago, and I was telling him a little bit about the show and what was in the show, and he immediately was expressing his enthusiasm for the flowers and he was like oh my my favorite maxim as an artist is by Manet <laughs> um, concision in art is a necessity and an elegance yeah. I think is the phrasing yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah, I was, I was so grateful you sort of reminded me of that. I immediately put it in the labels for one of the flower paintings. And now the exit quote on the, yeah. at, the at the end of the show yeah. is concision in art is a necessity and an elegance. So that comes from, you know, for me anyways, from a conversation I had with a, a painter who greatly admires Manet, who doesn't paint in a style anything like Manet's, but, you know, Manet is part of the tradition and I think, you know, engaged at some level with with a painter like Manet, either to reject or accept or, you know, what have you. <laughs> Emily Beanie and Scott Allen, thanks so much. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tyler. His art captured the zeitgeist of Impressionist-era society, fashion, and politics. So why isn't he as famous as Monet or Degas? See new scholarship revealed about 19th century art's best-kept secret in James Tiso, Fashion and Faith, opening this Saturday at San Francisco's Legion of Honor Museum. Navigate the winding path of Tiso's life as you explore the exhibition galleries, passing through his complicated friendship with Degas, a decade of expatriation in London, and a love affair with a tragic ending. Discover Tiso's spectacular world in James Tiso, Fashion and Faith, opening this Saturday. Head to legionofhonor.org to plan your visit. Sheldon Museum of Art at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln began in 1888 as a community-organized fine arts society. Within months of forming, the group audaciously presented its first exhibition, borrowing a 12-by-18-foot canvas by Carl Theodore von Pliotti from the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So many people traveled to Lincoln to see the work, on view in the federal courtroom of the city's post office, that the superintendent of the Burlington Railroad scheduled additional trains throughout the state. Today, Sheldon Museum of Art houses nearly 13,000 objects in diverse media in a landmark Philip Johnson building. Sheldon treasures a selection of some of the collection's most important and best-known objects by artists including Louise Bourgeois, Arthur Dove, Barnett Newman, Mark Rothko, Kay Sage, and Stanley Whitney, is on view through December 31st. To learn more, visit sheldonartmuseum.org. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum that believes in the power of dynamic experiences with art. Now on view is Susan Phillips, Seven Tears, 
Turner Prize-winning artist Susan Phillips is best known for her works that explore the potential of sound, often including her own untrained voice, to define space and its interaction with architecture. The exhibition includes a newly commissioned installation, Too Much I Once Lamented, created for the water court at the Pulitzer's Tato Ando Design Building. Other works, Poetic Meditations on Loss, Hope, and Longing, animate the museum's galleries and surrounding architecture, creating a constellation of singular, immersive environments. Susan Phillips' Seven Tears is on view through February 2nd, 2020. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. Welcome back. My next guest is Xiaotze Shea. He joins me to discuss his paintings, video, and more on the occasion of Xiaotze Shea Objects of Evidence at the Asia Society Museum in New York City. The exhibition, which was curated by Michelle Yoon, is on view through January 5th, 2020. Xie was born in Guangdong Province, China, before moving to the United States for graduate school at the University of North Texas in the mid-1990s. He now teaches at Stanford University. His work is in the collections of the MFA Houston, the Allen Memorial Art Museum at Oberlin, the Oakland Museum of California, and plenty more. Xie to Xie. Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, Tyler. I'm so delighted. As I understand it, you became interested in making books a subject of your work, your paintings, in 1993, which was not long after you moved to the United States. Is the timing of, of that interest a coincidence, or was there something about being here or not being in China that got you thinking about books and libraries? Well, shortly after moving to, to the United States, I actually tried a number of new subjects. Before coming here, I was interested in abstraction. After arriving in the States, I was faced with a whole different kind of environment in life. And of course, all these different pressures to deal with in terms of survival. And uh, I actually have painted grocery stores, yards with, uh, with uh, red cars. But after experimenting with these subjects, I did not feel like I was you know, finding a voice until I stumbled on the subjects of uh, library books. And I feel like there was something that captivated me and uh, continued to hold my attention. It started when I was in graduate school in North Texas. I spent a lot of time in the library. I often would be searching for reference materials uh, in the narrow aisles. And once I look up, I would see these rows and rows of books uh, in front of me, kind of like a wall. A lot of times I would not be seeing the titles or the authors, only some abstract numbers and letters, you know, all these traces of organization and categorization. So it was a very strange feeling. It's like, you know, you're looking at something uh, that contains something, something abstract, yet you don't know what it is. So anyway, I started to take photographs of these rows of books on library shelves. I, was also interested in um, manipulating the photographs at that time. So I did some printing. Some of these uh, prints I made uh, actually look rather painterly uh, when they were out of focus and blurry. So I started making oil paintings. At the beginning, it was uh, black and white oil paintings based on these images. And that was the beginning of the library series in 1993. And eventually, uh, in '95. I started the Chinese library series after visiting China for the first time. 
since moving to the U.S. But work has, has changed quite a bit when my subject changed. Uh, I was starting to use more colors. There was more emphasis on the process of decay, uh, the trace of time. And I think that has been sparked by my observation of the objects. And perhaps, uh, you know, a deep feeling about the culture I came from. We'll talk more about some of that in a minute, I think. When you paint books, you sometimes show us their spines, sometimes they're lying down, sometimes they're standing up, sometimes you paint the paintings, you're facing the pages of the book rather than the spine. Is how you choose to paint a book or, or, or a stack or series of books purely a formal decision, or are there other things, other ideas that inform how you choose to present certain books in your paintings? Well, it's kind of a complex uh, process involving different considerations. But my basic approach is to find, uh, you know, a row of books or stacks of books the way they are in the libraries. You know, how I found them as is on the shelves. So what I did not do is to rearrange these books and set them up the way that a traditional still life painter would do. And so well, for me, this, the surrounding, the atmosphere, the light, you might call the mise-en-scene of these images, or in, the in-situ quality of these images are important for me. And so when I found these books in different kind of environment, uh, in different configurations, that would cause my, my formal strategies to change. So some would emphasize on you know, vertical uh, repetition, some would be more horizontal and architectonic, uh, some paintings would be much more abstract, focusing on texture, so on and so forth. So I did not have a predetermined formula or format to deal with my subject. And the way I paint is also oftentimes affected by my response to different objects. Is that because it's important to you to paint the books as you found them because of a certain relationship to, to truth and presence, or are there other reasons? Well, one clear reason, as I mentioned, is to distance myself from the more traditional kind of strategy of still life painting, although I'm painting objects. The other reason is that I wanted to maintain the context to, I mean, to communicate this sense of context, like I say, the atmosphere, the space and light of a public collection. For example, this cool glow of the fluorescent light tubes that you often find in an institution. For me, that's something very different from, say, an image of my own bookshelf at home. So there's something kind of cold, something perhaps uh, rational or systematic about my approach. And you mentioned earlier that some of the books were, you know, most of them are closed in my paintings. At the beginning, the specific content of the books are not so important for me. I'm mostly interested in the forms and the different kind of, sometimes the hints of different contents, but never too specific. But eventually, uh, like in this recent project with uh, focusing on history of banned books, all the books were, are open, you know, content is becomes more important. 
that's really interesting to me about that about the fluorescent light because I, I had in my notes that the light in a lot of your paintings feels kind of institutional as somebody who spends a lot of time using university libraries and other related libraries i'm well used to that fluorescent that you know that particular quality of light and maybe that's one reason i feel i feel so at home in your paintings when we or at least when i think about forms of culture that endure across global cultures and geographies two of the forms that have continued for the longest period of time are our painting and the printed book both as objects that are many hundreds of years old that that we can still access today whether at you know on the wall of an art museum or in a library or what have you and as forms or media that continue to motivate artists and writers today i write books you make paintings people have been doing those things for many hundreds of years is that relationship between two old crafts, if you will, a relationship that interests or motivates you? Yes. Part of my intention is to transform something that is perhaps transitory, something that will decay or eventually uh, disappear uh, in a medium that is relatively more permanent. I mean, nothing is really permanent, but um, at least in our minds, we see these oil paintings in the museums it seems to be something that is more durable. It is uh, particularly relevant when I painted newspaper stacks. You know, I, I would say newspapers get recycled so quickly, life goes on, but, you know, my paintings uh, would try to capture them in a, in a form that, is, uh, that lasts longer. So there is a kind of, you know, static quality to those earlier paintings of newspaper stacks. But later on, when I paint close-up views of the stack of newspaper, then, of course, the, the content comes to the fore, and uh, you get this juxtaposition of different texts and images. Everything's fragmented, and this whole uh, a different kind of story. But it, still, it has something to do with capturing something that is fleeting. And it's also relevant when, uh, in around 2012 and 13, I met a group of Paintings on aluminum boards based on internet images is called the Weibo series. So the subjects, my source photos, source images were downloaded from a, at the time very popular social platform in China called Weibo. Kind of the Chinese Twitter, if you will. Yes, it, exactly. You know, those are like grassroots news sources, if you would. People share images of their surroundings, adding comments. And so a lot of content is actually quite sensitive, and some of them will be removed right away after being posted. And so now looking back at that group of work, I think it's also related to the idea of censorship, which my current show is focusing on. Speaking of which, the show includes a presentation of, of books that you've collected, books that were or are, or both, banned in China. I understand you're an artist and painter, of course, and that you're painting books. But what about collecting and documenting books and painting them is important to you? Why, why is it important to you to kind of present both in, in a single physical space? Well, we first must make a distinction between uh, different bodies of works in the exhibition. Uh, when you walk into the first space, the first gallery, you will see selected paintings from 2007 to 2018, 
the number of oil paintings from the Chinese Library series. These paint, the subjects of these paintings are not necessarily banned books. In fact, it happens, so it so happens that one of them is depicting banned books. So it's a project that is much more general, you know, it has to do with my view of books as a material form of memory, of time, of history and ideology, you know, anything that is abstract. And so it does not, this group of paintings, uh, it eventually lead to my project focusing on band books, but it's not part of it, strictly speaking. In one of the rooms, there is a video, a slow motion video projection titled Transients from 2011, I think. And uh, you will be seeing these slow motion images of books fluttering in the air, illuminated by theatrical light coming from underneath, a scene that reenacts the scene of book burning, although, you know, I didn't literally set fire to, to shoot the video. Anyway, that video, you can see that is how it connects to the idea of book banning and censorship, but in fact, it's not officially part of the banned book project. So the rest of the works uh, in the exhibition is centered on my project, which I titled Tracing Forbidden Memories, uh, History of Banned Books in China. And the project includes three parts. One is a group of photographs of pre-modern books, which I photographed in uh, public collections in Beijing and Shanghai. So these are life-size prints, one-to-one -one prints, of uh, books from the Ming and Qing dynasties. Some of them are like about 500 years old, four or 300 years old. Then the second part is called Objects of Evidence. That is the installation of books that I actually uh, collected over the years. Books published in the 1920s to the 30s, all the way to very recent time. And uh, the third part of the project is a documentary film showing my process searching for these books in bookstores and uh, on the internet, uh, my interviews with authors, with editors, scholars, you know, their conversations about the subject. So these are the three parts of the Ben Book project. The first part, the photography part, has a title called Scrutiny. And the second part called Objects of Evidence. And the documentary film is called Chasing for Bitten Memories. So in the paintings, even though the, the paintings could be viewed as a big project, like the library series or a sub-series, the Chinese library series, each work, I think, could exist on its own. It is an image, and it's not very specifically about one title or one specific history is something much more general. Whereas in the Ben Book project, everything really came out of necessity. I wanted to construct this history of censorship. And so when I could find the real objects, for example, in the installation, which I call Objects of Evidence, I would buy these books from early 20th century from two recent years. And so when I cannot purchase these books, I will try to locate these books in public collections. And it happens in the pre-modern titles because it is, would be extremely expensive to purchase these books. And in fact, 
most of them are not available on the market. So the only thing I was could do is to locate these uh, titles in public collections and uh, photograph them systematically and present them life-size. So these are all, I think, practical concerns out of my need to construct this history with objects, with images. And documentary film is also a necessary way for me to tell stories of various individuals, various contemporary titles, and uh, to bring in this broader context and background for the project. So formal or aesthetic decisions only kick in much later after collecting these materials than the, this thinking how I transform ideas into physical forms. Let's nerd out on painting for a minute. One of the influences that I see most clearly in your work is, is Gerhard Richter, particularly uh, his work of the mid-1960s where he kind of introduces ambiguity into into art and makes ambiguity itself a subject, something that is, is you know, maybe maybe in some ways a foundation of, of, of contemporary art, the open-ended question. And in those paintings, he, he blurs photographs. Were those Richter's important to you, or does your interest in Richter start later? After I came to the U.S., I started to learn more about contemporary art, which I was not aware of before. My uh, photo-based paintings came more directly from my interest in photography, less from a kind of stylist influence from Richter. So when I was making uh, black and white photographs, some of them were blurry. It was from my experiments in the dark room. And when I found something that is both very cold and sort of mechanical, but at the same time very lyrical, I saw a potential to transform it into painting. So I started to, to, to make this, you know, slightly blurry, out-of-focus paintings. Before that point, when I was painting junkyard cars, I also had included, well, in an installation called Duet, I included three panels using very free strokes and, you know, expressionistic colors, and three paintings depicting junkyard cars with photorealism with only black and white palette. So I was interested in photographic image before knowing Victor. So, however, in the mid-1990s, when I was making those library paintings, almost at uh, the same time, I became aware of Victor's work. The first work I was aware of was his October 1977 cycle of paintings. And uh, those were black and white, those were out of focus and blurry, and with a very disturbing subject, ambiguity, it struck me pretty hard. I, I still love that work. And that's also, uh, that also aligns with my interest in history. In the mid-90s, I was also looking a lot at historical photographs, and I'd make paintings and installations based on those photos. So I would not say it is, was a direct kind of uh, stylistic influence, uh, but when I saw his paintings, I feel like something was confirmed. I was encouraged. The October 1977 Gerhard Richter paintings you mentioned are the Bader-Meinhof paintings that uh, are at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. When I look at uh, a, a painting of yours, take one that's in the show, um, Chinese Library Number 55 from 2012, 
it's a a painting of pages of a book. The pages are are full field um, in the painting. They they cover every inch of the surface. They're very tactile and tempting, and they they read both as books, but also as an abstraction. And they the way you offer them in that picture reminds me a lot of of Richter's squeegee paintings, especially the ones he made on either aluminum or steel, probably aluminum. Were they important to you? Were those Richter's important to you? Oh, I, I think I know which ones that you are talking about. In my work, you are talking about Chinese Library number 55. It's a very large square composition. And then the abstract painting that you mentioned of Richter's is the one, I think, on, on the cover of his retrospective. Yeah, that's a good example uh, from uh, on the cover of the catalog at the moment retrospective, yeah. Yeah, uh, on that painting, uh, he used squeegee to pull wet paint over the surface and create this pattern of, I think, gray punctuated with red shapes. Was that important for me? Uh, certainly, when I was painting these uh, library paintings, I was more intensely focused on the images themselves. Uh, the hor- horizontal repetition, the change of sense of movement and texture, they all came from the image itself, although, I mean, it, these aspects were enhanced or intensified by the process of painting. So I was not thinking about Richter's abstract paintings. In fact, I have not made a, a, a freehand abstract painting. What I'm interested in is to blend these different elements into one picture. The element of photorealism, the history of painting, thinking about its use of red uh, undercoat and the texture, sometimes in pastel surface you know, elements of abstraction into one. So that is my, my take, my kind of approach. I don't feel like I treat the subject the same way Richter does. No, but there is a formal visual relationship. There might be, but of course the same thing could be said about like that particular piece of, of mine. You can, you can perhaps cite other abstract artists whose work have a... a, a you know, also emphasize repetition of horizontality or perhaps this wavy, you know, uh, rhythm. And because I had used photographs uh, and sometimes I've used photographs in a way that's uh, looser and kind of blurry, I think that's why Richter would come to mind. I think that there are some aspects in my work that, uh, that we call Richter style, but I think the, my attitude uh, towards subject is very different. The, the object means so much to me. So much of the painting process is focused on the representation and sometimes transformation of the object, of the source image. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you point out that there is a sense of movement in those squeegee Richters and in, 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 in this painting in Chinese Library number 55, maybe just because it's, horizontal leaves of a book i mean it's a square painting it's it's 98 by 98 98 inches by 98 inches but maybe because i don't know it, it, maybe it's the brush strokes it, it feels very caught in a moment of movement left to right the left hand side of the painting is much darker than the right hand side of the painting there appears to be some breakdown of of the paper maybe going on at the right it just there's a lot of movement i mean I, you know intellectually we know that there holds <laughs> <laughs> that they're holding still, 
but there's a real tension between the static and what feels like painterly movement in that painting. And uh, you may not notice that the bottom and middle left of that composition, uh, they are Chinese characters punctuating this movement. And uh, these words are names of the dynasties, like Jing is a dynasty, and uh, Nanbei Cao, you know, the southern and northern dynasties. So these are particular uh, periods in Chinese history uh, that the painting has uh, implied. Maybe these are history books. And so the addition of this writing, even though it is subtle, I think makes it very different from a purely abstract painting. And it just holds the whole painting in place. I mean, those Chinese characters, you know, I, 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 I mentioned how it feels like there's so much movement, painterly movement across the linen here. And those characters hold everything else still. Once you find them, everything in the painting stays put. They're a really, they're a really interesting passage. Shio Tsushé, thanks so much. Okay, thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.